Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Christians have traditionally pointed out that God gave humans free will, and by doing so, he took a risk. Now, why would I say that? God knew that by giving mankind free will, or the ability to choose evil over good, by doing so, he knew that evil could arise through the misuse of free will. As for why God permitted evil in the first place, that answer is multifaceted. But perhaps God allowed evil to occur for the same reason that good and loving parents allow their children to play outside. Even though they know the risk involved, such as the possibility of injury, the alternative is to not allow their children to play outside so that injuries cannot occur. But what kind of life would that be for the child? I mean, my parents weren't like that. After my second bowl of cocoa puffs, I was so high on sugar, they would just essentially push me out the door until I came back for lunch for my next sugar fix. On Saturdays and summer vacation, they would sort of just release me into the wild. Look how well adjusted I turned out. Of course, the downside of having free will is that we can all choose to do the wrong things. It is not at all difficult to find examples of those who, although believers in God and followers of him, they nevertheless allow their love of possessions to obscure their awareness of God. And that limits their growth, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Look at verse 67 with me. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If you will allow me, I think we could translate Peter's words from that verse this way. Lord, we have tried everything else, and we know that only you can satisfy the longing of a human heart. I don't know if you watched any of the 10-part documentary entitled The Last Dance. It was a series that that followed the Chicago Bulls and mainly Michael Jordan, back in their heyday. Now you would think that if the world had the ability to satisfy, then Michael Jordan would be the happiest man on the planet. He is arguably the best basketball player who ever lived. He is handsome and charismatic, and he's worth over $2 billion. But what arrested my attention was how most of his opponents and even his own teammates viewed him. No one questioned his passion or his work ethic, but very few people liked him, and actually some people hated him because he was so harsh and demanding. As I watched the final episode, it struck me in many ways how unforgiving, petty, and bitter Jordan still is after leaving the game 17 years ago. Do you know why? This is just my opinion, but I think that somewhere in the dark recesses of his soul, as he shuffles around his mansion with a cigar and a glass of scotch in his hand, he knows that his glory days of being a superstar are now over, and he has nothing to replace the void that has been left by that. And the reason is, this world was never meant to be our home. 
This has been the dilemma of man from the very beginning. In his famous speech, My Credo, delivered in Berlin in 1932, Albert Einstein put it this way. Our situation on earth seems strange. Every one of us appears here involuntarily and uninvited for a short stay without knowing the whys and the wherefore. For journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, this scene became the, became the motif for his entire life. He writes, the first thing I remember about the world, and I pray it will be the last, is that I was a stranger in it. This feeling which everyone has to some degree, and that which is at once the glory and desolation of the Homo sapiens, provides the only thread of consistency that I can see in my life. Actress Jessica Lange felt the same way. She says, the main thing that I sensed back in my childhood was the inescapable yearning that I could never satisfy. Even now at times I experience an inescapable loneliness and isolation. Oh, how I remember that feeling though, sitting on the front steps on a summer evening and hearing a lawnmower in the distance and a screen door slamming somewhere, it would actually make my heart ache. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has set eternity into the heart of every man. That means every person has this deep longing that things aren't as they should be. And no matter what we try to fill that God-shaped hole in our heart with, it will always ultimately fall short. And yet mankind is still prone to try and find other things to fill that void and the results are always disastrous. There is a great example of this in the Old Testament. You can find the story in Joshua chapter 7. It's the account of a man named Achan. And his name really fits because by the end of the chapter, that is exactly what he's going to be doing. Achan will be Achan. See what I did there? Anyway, next slide, please. I will give us the condensed version. We are told this in verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. You may be thinking, that's not fair. Why was the Lord's anger burning against everybody? We need to remember that God uses the stories of the Old Testament as examples or pictures of truth that we find in the New Testament, and this story vividly does that. The entire nation felt the consequences of one man's sin because in the Spirit we are one body and thus are connected. For example, if after church I go to Kroger's and steal a little box or box of Little Debbie Swiss rolls, what will happen? My whole body will go to jail, not just my hand. In the same way, when someone in our fellowship strays, somehow and in some way it affects the whole body of believers. Thus, because Achan sinned, God was grieved with the entire congregation. So Joshua sends the men to spy out a place called AI. That doesn't stand for artificial intelligence. It was just a tiny little town. In fact, the name Ai means heap. So it's just a little hillside town. Because of this, they decided not to even send the full army. 
They said, just send two or 3,000 men and that'll be enough. It'll be like taking 3,000 Navy SEALs and attacking JOLO. But once again, we are given a picture and an illustration in this story. But this time it comes from the life of Joshua. We are told to pray without ceasing by bringing all of our problems and requests unto God. But it seems that Joshua, in this instance anyway, didn't do that. This is why I find this intriguing. In Joshua chapter 3, instruction for crossing the Jordan had been given to Joshua by divine revelation. In Joshua chapter 5, instruction for dealing with the flesh once they were in the promised land was given to Joshua by divine revelation. In Joshua chapter 6, instructions for taking Jericho had been given to Joshua once again by divine revelation. In other words, all along the way, Joshua has been seeking the Lord. But when he thought he could handle Ai by himself, the Lord will allow him that opportunity. Paul put it this way when he asked the Galatians, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect by your flesh? And the same can be true of us. Although we were once open to the mystery and intimacy of God's word, specifically and personally given to us, a Joshua chapter 7 mentality can kick in, which causes us to say, I can handle this little problem with my own energy, insight, and ability. After all, it's just AI. And if we do that, God may also allow us the opportunity to see how well we do without him. Now imagine they're shocked when instead of defeating the little town, they are sent back running home in retreat. Not only that, 36 Israeli men are going to die. The Bible in beautiful poetic language tells us that the hearts of the people melted and became like water. As is often the case, Whenever we don't pray and try to do things in our own strength, after all that fails, we decide it might be a good time to pray. We are told that Joshua tore his clothes and fell down before the Lord. God tells Joshua that the reason for their defeat is that Israel has sinned by taking some of the things that were banned that they weren't supposed to take. God then tells him, until you deal with this as a nation, you will not be able to stand in the presence of your enemies. Maybe you've been there. I know I have on occasion. Why aren't things working out? Why aren't things coming to pass? And the Lord would say, it's because I love you too much to let you continue in your sin, which will destroy you. Therefore, I'm holding back my provision, my presence, my power, and my blessing." Not because I'm mad at you, but because I grieve for you. The next thing we read about is that the Lord has Joshua bring all the people by tribes and then families. And the Lord revealed by Lot that it was Achan's family who was responsible. This is Joshua 7.20. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, 
Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Anytime we disobey God, it will cause us to mimic Adam and Eve in the garden after they ate the forbidden fruit. What was the first thing that they did? They hid. And as is the case here, Achan knew what he did was wrong, and so he tried to hide it. So now we see that Achan is one of whom this is true. He was a soldier in Israel who fought at the Battle of Jericho, but the spoil of that battle was to be dedicated unto God. But Achan saw and took for himself a beautiful Babylonian garment, 20 pieces of silver, and a bar of gold. What I've always thought was weird about that was the Babylonian garment. I mean, I get stealing the silver and the gold, but why would he steal a Babylonian garment? Think about it. Where is he going to wear it? It's not like he can wear it to Walmart because people would see it and know that he stole it. Maybe once in a while he just put it on and pranced around in front of his mirror and admired himself. And then what would he do? He'd bury it again. There can also be a tendency for us to think like Achan, we have our sin covered. God, however, says otherwise. God declares to all of us, be sure of this one thing, your sin will find you out. Therefore, we would be a wise group of people to make right those situations that we think we have hidden. For if we choose to do that, we will diminish what the repercussions would otherwise have been when God brings about full disclosure. If we refuse to do this, in some way we can be assured of God's judgment upon our sin. We are told that God had the entire family stoned to death and then thrown into a fire. Right now you're probably thinking the exact same thing I was thinking the first time I read that. Once again, that's not fair. Why was his family also judged? They were innocent. No, they weren't. And this is how I know. In Deuteronomy 24:16, God gave Israel this command. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. And so since a law in Israel prohibited innocent family members from being punished from the sins of their relatives, Achan's family must have been guilty of assisting him in this sin. His household was judged the same way Israel would deal with the Jewish city that had turned to idols. Achan and his family had turned away from the true and the living God. And they had given their hearts to what God had accursed. And all they got for it was silver, gold, and an expensive garment. It reminds me of Judas. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But guess what? Once he fully realized what he did, Matthew tells us he threw the money to the temple sanctuary and went and hung himself. So he never even had the chance to spend his betrayal money. But isn't that what James says the end result of sin always is? He says that when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, 
And when sin is finally accomplished, it always brings forth death. As a quick aside, it's always amazed me the duplicity that people have when it comes to God judging evil. The theological term for how God deals with evil is called theodicy. So here's what I don't get. People say they can't believe in God because of all the evil that is in the world. So if there is a God, why doesn't he do something about it? Then we read of how God does judge evil. They turn their argument around and say, why would a supposed loving God be so harsh in his judgment against evil? So no matter what God does, people are dissatisfied. Such is the wicked and proud heart of man that we think we know better than the Lord God Almighty. Next verse, please. The last verse of that chapter says, They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Although the word Achor means trouble, Hosea 2.15 tells us that the Valley of Achor will one day be a door of hope. The trouble that Achan brought upon himself and his family and the nation would only truly be dealt with by Jesus, who in John 10.7 tells us, I am that door of hope. Although Jesus was completely innocent, like Achan, he would be burned with the fire of God's wrath. Additionally, Isaiah 65 tells us the flock shall lie down, where? In the valley of Achor. That's what God can do. If we come clean and say, Lord, I've erred, but you took the place and the blame and the heat on my behalf, although we may still feel the repercussions from our sin, we can be assured that we are still part of his flock. And referring to the tribulation as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah also used the word achor. It's a fitting word indeed for the tribulation, because once again, like Achan and his family, Israel will also be stoned with 100-pound hailstones and burned in the fire of persecution. But even this will be a door of hope because in the midst of their difficulty, the people of Israel will be singled out and shown the truth. And as a result of that, the Bible says all of Israel shall be saved. And what a grand and glorious day that will be. All I want us to get from the story of Achan is that this world will never satisfy us. Why? Because this world does not have the ability to satisfy us. As the hymn so beautifully states it, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. We were at a picnic a week ago and one of the parents there was blowing soap bubbles. And the kids would chase them and try to catch them. But do you know what happened when they finally did get their hands around the bubble? It popped and immediately disappeared. And that's what made me think of Michael Jordan and everyone like him, who thinks that the things or people that they chase in this world can give them lasting satisfaction. They chase the bubble of wealth, or the bubble of relationships, or the bubble of achievement. 
only to discover when they finally do grasp what they have been chasing, the fulfillment that they were hoping for pops and disappears. Kind of like in the Lord of the Rings when Gollum at the end grabs the ring. He is finally in possession of his precious. And what happens? He and the, and the ring both dissolve in a lake of fire. Like that. It is so easy for us to chase the wrong things. Solomon was a wise man in most respects, but he was not wise in regard to wealth and women, both of which ruined his spiritual life. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which caused one little girl to ask her mother why Solomon had 300 porcupines which actually may be a little closer to the truth if you think about it. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Lord about money, and they were judged for it. Paul wrote of Demas, who because he has loved this present world, has deserted me. Unfortunately, this is true to a large degree in our own time. If it were possible this morning for Jesus to ask you, do you also want to leave me I hope all of our answers would mirror what Peter said Lord where else can we possibly go you and you alone have the words of eternal life look at verse 69 please also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ the son of the living God I do not know why the apostle Peter appeals to me as much as he does but I suppose it's because I am so much like him in many ways. On the negative side, he is impetuous. He speaks without thinking. His motto could have been, ready, fire, aim. And because he speaks without thinking, what he says is almost always wrong. One guy said, you will know Peter in heaven because he will be the guy with the foot-shaped mouth. He also can be overly confident. So one of the first things Jesus needed to teach him was that he was actually ignorant, weak, and cowardly. On the other hand, Peter is loyal, good-natured, and extremely anxious to learn and do the right thing. So when he is close to Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit, he occasionally has great insight into divine truth and speaks truly. That's what happened here. While Peter is often the most criticized of all the disciples, his response to the hard teaching of Jesus illustrates genuine belief. He didn't pretend to understand everything that Jesus taught. Yet he tenaciously held on to his master. He said, in effect, Lord, we have no other options. You have the words of eternal life, even if we can't understand them fully. He got the order right. Belief first, understanding later. Belief like that is supernatural and it will persevere until the end of days. Let us admit at the onset that this runs counter to our natural instincts and to our natural way of doing things. From a human point of view, who ever heard of believing in something in order to be sure of it? We want to make sure of something before we believe in it. We want to test out a person before we know we can trust him. But God reverses the order. Take these examples. David said, I'm confident of this, 
I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? In Hebrews we are told, By faith we understand. There is a reason for this, of course. Quite simply, it is because divine truth is beyond us. God's ways are not our ways. So we will begin to understand God's ways only as we begin to understand God. And we can only begin to know God through trusting in Him. Assurance, insight, knowledge, these are the fruit of believing. Certainty that Jesus is the Son of God comes therefore, not by listening to the arguments of professors or by reading the latest theological book, but rather by believing what God has said about His Son in the Scripture. If you have not done that yet, don't wait for every question to be answered. Don't delay trusting in Christ because you cannot resolve every theological conundrum. God has called you to belief, and so respond in faith. In time, he will unravel mysteries as you walk with him throughout life. And when you stand in his presence in eternity, all will be made clear. The only mistake that Peter made was to bear witness for the entire group. I find it intriguing that Peter was sure that all the apostles were believers. That shows us how convincing Judas was. Even Peter did not know that Judas was an unbeliever. But this has reference to the thought of going back. And Peter is expressing his view that having once come to Jesus, such a thing is unthinkable. Is it unthinkable to you? Or would you consider going back? You might say this morning, I'm so discouraged right now that I think I might. Well then, let me ask us this. What would we go back to? Is there anything in our past that can compare with Jesus? Would you go back to your former way of life? You know what your way of life was before you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remind ourselves that there was a reason we decided to leave our life of sin and follow Christ. It may have been characterized by a great emptiness of meaning or lack of purpose. And then God filled you and gave your life meaning. Would you go back to that emptiness? Your former way of life may have been filled with the excesses of sin. Mine was. It may have been drunkenness, drugs, sexual debauchery, or other things. You were ruining yourself by those sins. Will you turn back to those? The past may have been characterized by worldliness in the sense of assuming this world's values. You may have been on a great ego trip from which you have been delivered by Christ. Would you go back to that? Was that so satisfying? Once again, there is a reason why people leave their life of sin and embrace Christ. And it's because they have grown sick and weary of what the Bible calls the empty way of life. So as we finish up this morning, the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in His Son. And the glory of the gospel is only made evident in His Son. 
That's why Jesus' question to his disciples about them leaving is so important. He once asked them, Who do you say that I am? The reply, You are the Christ, and you are the only one worth following. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian was face to face with the devil in his travels to the celestial city, he thought how dearly he would love to go back and escape the conflict. However, when he thought about his armor, he remembered that he had none for his back. He had a shield, a breastplate, a helmet, and a sword, but nothing covering his back. So he realized that should he turn around, it would be the work of only a moment for the devil to slay him with a spear. He therefore resolved that however bad it might be to go forward, it would nonetheless be even worse to go backward. So he fought on and gained the victory. Let us all think of that the next time we are discouraged or tempted. Retreat is impossible. Press on. There is nothing the world can offer us that rivals the king. And Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the change you made in this man. I was vile and foul. And in your great mercy and grace, you transform me. And Father, I pray that for every heart represented here this morning, as I pray every Sunday, it seems, only you know where we are with you. So I pray that wherever we are with you, Lord, you would meet that need and be to us who you need to be. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.